Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Climate change is a global problem which impacts the health and well-being of millions of people. And with the impacts of climate change being recognized as more frequent and more severe, global efforts at adaptation are now being seen as complementary to existing mitigation efforts. Our guest this week is Manish Bapna, the Executive Vice President and Managing Director at the World Resources Institute. My colleague Sarah Ladislaw asked Manish to help us understand what climate change adaptation is in practice, what decision makers can do to foster smart adaptation efforts, and what type of financing is needed to make adaptation possible. They also talk about the real need to integrate climate risks from the start to make more effective planning. It's a great discussion, so let's turn it over to Sarah and Manish now. Manish, thanks for being here. Welcome to Energy 360. I'm delighted to be here. We have a wide variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds that listen to Energy 360. I thought a really good place to start for this conversation is with a very simple question. What is adaptation? So we recognize that you know climate change is starting to happen today. We're starting to see impacts in terms of more storms, more intense storms, droughts, changes in temperature, changes in rainfall that are starting to have real impacts on people. How communities, how homeowners, how cities, how countries respond to those climate impacts is a really important part of helping protect lives and livelihoods. So examples could be early warning systems. So when storms come, how do we warn communities that they need to take shelter? Uh, It could be around uh, better irrigation more drought-resistant seeds. So when you have droughts in agricultural areas, farmers are able to actually withstand the unpredictability in the rainfall. It could mean more resilient roads and bridges. Uh, As temperatures increase, roads that were built for a certain heat may not withstand greater heat. How do you ensure that's taking place? And a lot of times it also means protecting nature. Mangroves play an incredibly important part in buffering coasts from storm surges. How do we ensure those mangroves are protected? So lots of various um, investments need to be made to help protect cities, communities from a changing climate. So one of the reasons why we invited you here today was to talk about a report called Adapt Now that was put out by the Global Commission on Adaptation. Can you tell us a little bit about what that commission is and who's involved and why the World Resources Institute is part of the commission? Absolutely. So over the past 10 or 15 years, adaptation has not yet received the political visibility that it needs. And so in part to help elevate greater visibility on adaptation, as well as to create more momentum and action on adaptation, we felt that a commission that would be able to actually achieve both objectives about a year ago would have been a perfect time to set up. So we established this in October of 2018. Uh, It is being co-chaired by Ban Ki-moon, Kristalina Georgieva, who, as many may know, is the incoming managing director for the International Monetary Fund, as well as Bill Gates, who I suspect most people (laughs) people know. know. And so those three co-chairs, along with WRI, the World Resources Institute, where I'm from, as well as the Global Center on Adaptation, which is headquartered in the Netherlands, helped pull together another 30 commissioners, CEOs, major companies, ministers from major countries around the world, mayors. NGO leaders together 
along with 20 heads of state of major countries that have endorsed the commission to actually carry out these types of activities. You mentioned something at the beginning of your statement, which was that adaptation hasn't received the level of attention that it needs to or the level of visibility. I'm sort of curious in this interplay between our typical conversations on climate change, which are about mitigation, right, reducing emissions to deal with the impacts of climate change in a way that we stabilize the Earth atmosphere and and get in a better position to, to solve this problem long term. What is, in your experience, the interplay between things like adaptation and mitigation, and why had the time come to really increase the visibility of adaptation? Excellent question. Because for the last 15, 20 years, adaptation was kind of a dirty word. Most people felt that by talking about adaptation, we would be giving up on mitigation, and that mitigation was, if anything, the best form of adaptation is to reduce emissions, to reduce warming. But what has happened over the past few years is an increasing recognition that climate impacts are happening here and now. And rather than seeing these as a choice, focus on one or focus on the other, a recognition that we need to focus on both. We need to both drive down emissions to try to achieve a world that limits temperature increase to one and a half degrees while still preparing for a world that may be on a three or four degree trajectory because that is actually the trajectory we're on today. The other reason why is because a greater focus on adaptation increasingly now is focusing attention on mitigation. If one takes the example of Florida in the United States, a very interesting conversation taking place where we're beginning to see much greater bipartisan support for climate action because everyone in Florida recognizes how vulnerable the state is to climate impacts. Yeah. And so we're beginning to see increasingly a recognition that focusing on adaptation can really help yeah. uh, with efforts on mitigation. So certainly not in, in either or sort of dichotomy as, as it has been conceived of for a while, but increasingly something you can do together. And I think the commission report actually has a lot of strategies for that. One of the things... I like about these commissions in these reports and, and why I think they're so useful is that they have a lot of framing devices. And one of the ones that, that is in this report talks about, you know, adaptation being a human, environmental, and economic imperative. Why did you all think it was important to sort of frame it in those terms? And how should that help guide policymakers in thinking about this? So the human imperative is uh, a recognition that climate impacts are going to affect the most vulnerable, and oftentimes those populations that have contributed the least to the problem. So we have these quite scary projections. We could, you know, climate change, if it continues unabated, could push 100 million people back in poverty. It could reduce the yields of major crops by up to 30% by the year 2050. It could incur about a trillion dollars per year in economic damages to coastal cities by 2050. So this has huge, huge implications for poverty and human well-being, which is why we made the human imperative argument. But we thought it was also quite important to bring out the environmental imperative because nature is oftentimes our best defense against climate impacts. Yet if we don't reduce emissions, we will actually lose the very best defense we have. So you could imagine you see what's happening in California with wildfires, in part attributed to climate change, destroying forests. 
You see the oceans warming that are affecting coral reefs. You see droughts that are affecting the quality of land. So the ability of nature then in the future to withstand climate impacts gets undermined. And so we thought it was really important to call out the environmental kind of imperative. What was perhaps most surprising, though, was the economic imperative, that many of the investments we see made in adaptation actually have strong benefit-cost ratios. So we look at a variety of adaptation investments, and we realize that the benefit-cost ratios for those investments range between 2 to 1 to 10 to 1. So we're trying to change the narrative from one that sees adaptation largely about the costs of climate change to one that empowers people to recognize that investing in adaptation makes good economic sense. I want to ask you more about the economic return on investments in resilience, but I did also want to point out on the on the environmental side of the, the ledger, particularly sort of the, the natural systems, natural capital side, it's really interesting to me that most of the time people don't think about nature as having a safeguarding you know, role to play in our communities and, and sort of larger ecology. And so I think that's one of the things I've seen over the last six to eight months, people really starting to appreciate the role that nature plays in just safeguarding against some of these impacts. And I think this report, uh, that section in particular, does a very good job of, of outlining all the ways in which it plays that role. But on the economic side of the equation, you did mention sort of uh, the every dollar invested could yield two to 10 in net economic uh, uh, benefits. But what are some of the reasons why or the barriers to realizing that? I mean, it reminds me a lot of the energy efficiency story we've heard for so long, which is this is low-hanging fruit. It makes money if you do it. But what are some of the things that that prevent us from making those investments? Let me answer that first by just trying to explain a little bit on the economics and then why, despite the good economics, we're not seeing the uptake we'd like to see. So on the economics, part of the reason the economics are quite strong is that not only does, for example, mangroves help protect coastlines from storm surges, so there's an avoided loss component Mm -hmm. that is a benefit in in terms of avoiding loss, but mangroves also help nurture, for example, you know, fisheries, Mm -hmm. so they can create economic benefits. Mm -hmm. And mangroves also help uh, sustain biodiversity, create opportunities for recreation or tourism. So there's a whole set of social and environmental benefits that may not be easily monetized, Mm -hmm. but are still important as well. So the avoided losses, the economic benefits, as well as the non-monetized environmental or social benefits to many of these investments is what makes adaptation investments have these high economic returns. That said, we're not seeing the scale, the urgency. And, and because there's a number of barriers that are still getting in the way of people fully appreciating uh, why investing in adaptation makes good economic sense. And I'll, I'll lay out a few. The first is that oftentimes climate risk is not yet visible. People aren't aware mm-hmm. of precisely how significant the impacts or the risks will be to them. The second, and this is not in any way purely an adaptation challenge, but short-term bias, yeah. <laughs> right? Future risks are difficult for policymakers, for elected leaders to address today. The third, um, we all work in silos, and oftentimes the response to adaptation will require different ministries within government, different levels of government, the public and private sector working together in ways that does not come easily. The fourth 
the financial system is only slowly starting to understand and to quantify climate risk. Mm -hmm. And so the financial system isn't geared to provide the financing necessary for investing in adaptation. But perhaps the fifth reason is what is most important, and that has to do with power structures. The challenge with adaptation is that it oftentimes affects those that have the least political voice. And so in a world of significant inequality, in a world where there's increased closing of civic space, more authoritarian governments, the responsiveness to those communities that have the least political voice is is oftentimes absent. Mm. And that's what we need to also take into account as to why we're not seeing the investments that need to be made today. I I think that last point is a a particularly important one. I want to get back to it when we get to some of the strategies that are recommended in the report about what to do about some of these challenges. But in order to think about this, the commission had to assess whether or not countries are prepared to deal with these challenges today. And we tend to think about, because because we talk about how developing country economies are not necessarily have strong capacity to be able to deal with some of these challenges, it sort of makes people think that developed countries are. But at the same time, you see in the United <laughs> States and elsewhere, you know, we've had s- strong uh, storms or, uh, or wildfires, uh, as mm-hmm. we're currently seeing, things that are associated with, you know, climate impacts. And we don't build better. We don't respond in a way that would make us more resilient going forward. How do you think about the preparedness of even the most developed economies today relative to the challenges that you see in a changing climate? I think what we see is we're seeing leadership on adaptation actually more visible in those countries that are on the front line of impacts. Because to some extent, they've been grappling with this for quite a bit longer. Mm. And it's almost an existential question for some of them. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, In Bangladesh, some of you may recall that they're a country that is besieged with cyclones, with massive damage, right? Low-lying countries, so the storm surges oftentimes have massive uh, devastation on lives and livelihoods. In 1970, there was a cyclone called Bola that killed 300,000 people. Uh, A similar cyclone in 2007 killed about 3,000 people. Similar cyclone this year killed five people. Massive reduction in deaths from cyclones of similar magnitude, in no small part because Bangladesh recognized its vulnerability, invested heavily in early warning systems, invested heavily in both shelters near the villages of coastal communities, in roads that would enable people to get to those shelters, and in terms of recovering from those impacts by being able to provide financing in a fairly readily fashion after those impacts struck. So quite a quite an impressive innovation. Um, in Costa Rica, we see a very proactive effort that as temperature increases, areas that typically grew coffee, very difficult to grow coffee in those areas. And so they're actually shifting production from coffee to oranges, mm. which would grow much more effectively. Um, in the UK, you saw kind of a very interesting example around the Thames barrier, a recognition that sea level rise could flood or create real havoc to the city of London. And so they wanted to create a barrier that would enable the city to be protected from storm or river surges. 
but they didn't know how high this river would rise. And so they created a barrier that actually over time could be increased in terms of its height that enabled kind of an infrastructure to be built that would be able to deal with that type of uncertainty. So, so the point I'm trying to make is we're, we're actually seeing pockets of leadership around the world, but more often than not, some of the most innovative lessons are taking place from some of the smaller, uh, more vulnerable countries. Those were really great examples of some places that are taking leadership roles based on their experience. Unfortunately, sometimes repeat experience, but certainly developing some good strategies. But one of the things that you all did in the report was to talk about different elements of climate change adaptation. Um, you said, you know, reduce and prevent, prepare and respond, and restore and recover. Those were kind of like the three categories of things. I think it's really helpful for people who perhaps in the developing community who are not as well-versed in having experiences and in sort of adapting to these things in successful ways to try and think about ways and strategies to do that. Where are the places where there's the most need for outside investment or private sector participation or development bank lending for some of these adaptation activities in developing country economies? I think that most of what has happened around climate impacts to date has oftentimes been after the fact. Disaster hits, yeah. and just like we would see with natural disasters, you know, the humanitarian kind of machinery responds, the international community responds, but it's usually to help countries recover yeah. from disaster. And yet we know that as with natural disasters and the same with climate impacts, that earlier investment to prevent mm -hmm. can go a long way towards reducing the damages after the fact. So let me just give you, you know, an example here is climate impacts will have a massive consequence for the 500 million small farms around the world that provide livelihoods for over 2 billion people, many of whom are concentrated in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Much more unpredictable rainfall, much greater storms put those livelihoods at risk. Instead of waiting to respond to those disasters, we know that we could do a lot more early on to help them weather those types of impacts. One example would be in really investing in agricultural research to create more heat-resistant, drought-resistant, or flood-resistant crops. And so we've been working with Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation to mobilize a set of international partners that would invest in agricultural research in a much more significant way so that farmers would have seeds that are more resilient to these types of shocks. And so that's an example of where the international community can come together and instead of waiting for the disaster to strike, can invest in research that can improve the productivity of those seeds and their ability to remain resilient even in the face of such impacts. I want to talk about one more area where the commission placed a lot of focus, and there's a lot of activity going on globally, which is sort of the mobilization of finance. And in the context of the commission report, I think you alluded to it earlier, calls for basically three revolutions, right? One is better understanding, two is better planning, and then the third is financing and really mobilizing that financing. What were the things that the commission saw as necessary to mobilize that level of financing? 
So hugely important piece of responding to climate impacts, to investing in adaptation, is the finance question. And to date, part of the problem has been most of the finance question around climate change has been purely confined to what is called climate finance. Mm -hmm. Really, what money can be mobilized from the international community to help support developing countries, both with mitigation and adaptation. And that is an important part of the conversation, but it's only a small part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So the point we wanted to make in this report is that one needed to look at the financial system in its entirety. Every year, we will and will continue to spend trillions of dollars in infrastructure, public money, private money, much of it domestic, some of it international. If that money into infrastructure does not take climate risks into account, mm -hmm. much of it could go to waste. And so how do you integrate climate risk into those trillions of dollars that go into infrastructure investment? Is an important overarching point we're trying to make is you got to integrate climate risk across the entire financial system. We make three sub-points. The first is that public finance will remain incredibly important. Uh, unlike for mitigation, a lot of the investments in adaptation don't generate bankable revenue. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily create the revenue stream that would encourage the private sector in, to invest. Some of them do, but not everything. And so in those cases, public money, public resources will be incredibly important. But the private sector will play still a, quite an important role. They need to think about how climate risk will affect their own operations, their own supply chains. But there's also opportunity. One of the CEOs on the commission was from Macquarie, which is an infrastructure investment firm. And the CEO, she spoke about how climate change has encouraged them not only to climate-proof their infrastructure investments, mm -hmm. but to create a new asset class around creating more resilient infrastructure. So looking at both the risk and the opportunity afforded to her and her company related to climate change. So the private sector has also a crucially important role to play. But the third point is there will still need to be some non-trivial level of international money that flows from the developed world to the developing world just because of the scale of the problem and the fairly limited resources of some of the most vulnerable countries. Mm. One of the things I wanted to get at before, I'd love to talk about what's going on next for the commission in this year of action that you've called for. We had mentioned the idea of power structures earlier on, and one of the things I think that you point out in the report, which highlights the political difficulty sometimes of conversations about adaptation, is this concept of planning ahead sometimes means protecting people by moving them from where they live or thinking ahead about how to structure your communities so that people don't live on the front lines of impacts, but perhaps in a more um, protected place. And it was really interesting a couple of weeks ago participating in a conference where someone said to me for the first time, you know, a lot of frontline communities don't like the term resilience very much because it means they're going to get hit by something. There's going to be a harm mm -hmm. and that they're going to have to bounce back. And I thought that was actually a really interesting framing an evolution in this concept of adaptation where we've traditionally thought of if you have to have a, a managed retreat from certain places, that would be ultimately the worst political outcome. 
But perhaps, you know, the politics points to it being really difficult for, you know, communities to have to just accept the fact that this is a risk they're going to have to live with forever. And I just thought it was interesting that you all chose to put, you know, that concept in this paper and and, and talk about sort of the, the political difficulty of doing that, but in a potentially positive light. I didn't know if you had any thoughts that you wanted to reflect on. Uh, with that with that in mind, it's a really interesting question because I think to some extent, up till recently, we all saw adaptation in an incremental sense, mm-hmm. some modest things that we need to do differently in order to remain resilient in the face of climate shocks. But increasingly, as we're beginning to see the impacts of just one degree of warming, much less what we might see in the next few decades with two or three degrees, we're beginning to realize that incremental adaptation may not be enough, that we might need to, as I mentioned earlier, uh, shift from coffee to oranges. Or we might need to see farmers actually move away from farming and find other types of livelihoods that aren't dependent on agriculture. Or we might need to see communities that live uh, on the coast retreat. Mm -hmm. And so these are fairly significant shifts. Um, Clearly, the most existential ones are when you have entire small island states that may disappear. And they're already planning what would life look like if they were not able to stay on the islands in which they live. For some, I think we see that uh, as, as quite problematic because it is an entirely new way of life and such change is is difficult. But as you correctly said, for others, being able to escape that risk yeah. can be empowering. Yeah. Um, and so I think what we realize is different people respond to those types of risks in, in quite different ways. Yeah. And we just need to recognize that there will be a differentiated strategy that different communities take. But what is most important is that we create the space for them to make those choices themselves Mm -hmm. as to whether to stay or whether to leave. Uh, To some extent, the agency should be left with them. And that's why the inclusivity of the process is so important. Well, you all are moving forward with a year of action. You've got action tracks. What does that look like? What should people expect to see coming from the commission over the next year or so? And if they were so inclined to get involved or stay up to date on what you're doing, how would they do that? So the next year is arguably even more important than the past one. I mean, reports are important. We do reports. <laughs> we like we love reports. <laughs> so we like that. But, but, but you know, we, we, we are at a point now where, where we need to translate the recommendations of those reports into real action. And so what we did is we set this commission. Usually the report is the end of a commission. We, we actually see it as, as very early in the adaptation commission because we want to take those recommendations, take the most important pieces of each, and actually what we've done is create a set of action tracks mobilizing governments, companies, civil society leaders, to translate those recommendations into real commitments and to act on those commitments. So there are eight action tracks, food, water, nature-based solutions, cities, locally-led action, finance, infrastructure, and preventing disasters. And for each of those action tracks, we're trying to identify very specific, tangible actions that can be taken over the next 12 to 24 months. So, for example, in food, we're looking at doubling the investment that goes into agricultural research to create more resilient crops. 
in finance. We're bringing together a coalition of finance ministers to help them better understand the impacts of climate change on macroeconomic policy, on fiscal policy, so they can respond more effectively. On locally-led action, we're trying to actually devolve more financial resources and provide more authority to local communities and to cities because we recognize that oftentimes frontline communities are best placed to respond to climate impacts. And so we're looking at making these types of commitments that uh, governments, uh, major multilateral development banks, major companies, NGOs will commit to deliver uh, over the next 12 months. And this will come together both at a global adaptation summit that is being organized in the Netherlands in October, and then also we anticipate many of these commitments landing at the next major climate meeting in the United Kingdom in December 2020. And so we really want to make sure that the report kicks off a year of action that starts to create uh, steps towards building much greater resilience in those economic systems that are most vulnerable to climate change. And for anyone that's interested, we would welcome everyone's involvement. One of the main messages of this report is climate impacts adaptation is affecting everyone. Developed countries, developing countries, the poor, the rich might be in different ways, but no one will be spared. And so we invite everyone to be part of this process, part of this momentum, part of this movement. Please contact me. Please contact my organization, and we'll help put you in touch uh, with the right with the right people. That's excellent. Well, thank you very much for, for coming and talking about the commission and its work, both what you've started and, and what you plan to do for this year. We'll be sure to put up the contact information, the website, for people to be able to access it. But just wanted to congratulate you on a really impressive piece of work that I think will have important contributions to helping us solve this challenge. So thanks very much much for being here today. Likewise. Thank you. Excellent. We're delighted to be part of this conversation. Thanks to Manish for joining Energy 360. We encourage you to check out the work of the Global Commission on Adaptation. There's a link to the commission and to the Adapt Now report in our bio. And thank you for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and send us your thoughts and suggestions at CSIS.org or find us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.